You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. So pleased today to have on the podcast George Saris, the author of Heaven's Doors, Wider Than You Ever Believed. So welcome, George. It's good to have you on the podcast today. It is a privilege to be able to join you, David. Thank you for inviting me. Well, George, uh, you've become one of my friends on this uh, spiritual journey that I've been on in, in believing that God was ultimately going to save all people. I started following your online blog, uh, Reforming the Culture, and I saw there that you were writing a book, and then your book came out. Then I met you at a conference, and we started keeping in touch, and then we were roommates at another conference, and you came and visited me here where I live, and then my book, Grace Saves All, came out. And then you recorded the audio version of it for Audible. Now I've got the podcast going and you've done the, you're the voice of the, of the intro and the outro for the, for the podcast. So we've had quite a journey together over the past uh, few years. I'm so pleased to have you as my very first interview guest on the podcast and to get to introduce you to my audience. Well, that sounds great. And thank you again for the privilege because it really is a joy. I've enjoyed meeting you, enjoy meeting your wife. Uh, being able to come out to Arkansas and actually see some of the people that uh, are out there that you've been ministering to. It's really been a delight to me. Yeah, it was, it was interesting to me. You know, I live in, uh, I live in a small town in Arkansas and, and uh, you know, this is a, it almost seemed to me like if this was something that was happening, you know, this, in, this wasn't just something that was happening with me, but from other people in my community that were that were coming to me and they were talking about this. And so I started to think, man, if this is happening in, mm. you know, this isn't just happening in, you know, liberal America, this is, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the heartland. I'm in the, I'm in a red, red place. And that this isn't just something that's happening to, you know, for liberals, but, you know, conservative, what I think of as conservative, um, uh, Bible believing, when I say Bible believing, I mean, you know, like believing in the errant inerrancy of scripture. These are real true conservative people that are starting to come to these same ideas. And that's one of the things that got me interested in you because, you know, sometimes people might say, well, you know, this whole thing about believing that God will ultimately save everyone, you know, that's just for uh, liberals, but I'm a conservative. And then I would say, well, well, meet my friend, George Saris. He's a conservative. <laughs> would you say that's fair that you're, that you have a, that conservatism and, and having a conservative approach to scripture and things, that's a fair summary of a uh, fair description of you? Absolutely. Uh, I'm convinced that uh, God's word is inerrant and true. And um, so therefore, it was really important to me to not just say, oh, that this would be a nice thing to believe in. I wanted to make sure that it's actually taught in scripture. And uh, so that was really the key for me at the very beginning. Um, yeah, I... I I'm definitely conservative theologically and uh, interested in pursuing the truth. So we're going to find out uh, how it is that somebody that's conservative theologically, I think as we get in your story, we'll find out that you know, that's really all true and how you came to how you came to this. So I, I just want to uh, kind of begin with your story. As I, I remember it, you grew up in a in a fairly traditional, very loving family, traditional kind of going to church. Um, 
experience. Um, and so is that, is that right? Yeah. Um, sort of right. Uh, my mom went to church every week and had us go to uh-huh. church. She was actually, uh, very spiritually minded in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm from a Greek background and, uh, I never found out interestingly till I was in my forties that, uh, my grandfather actually was ordained as an Orthodox priest in the Eastern Ooh, Orthodox that's Church. That's yeah, really you know, because yeah, because well, you know, because this all comes back around a lot to the Greek language and the and the Greek early Greek speaking church. So I think that's an interesting connection. Yeah, but interestingly, uh, we went to an Episcopal church and then a Baptist church, and I didn't uh-huh. know why. And when I was a little boy, uh, my mom uh, mentioned that her father was religious, but she did never t- never told me that he had been ordained as a priest. And it, it was toward the end of his life. And shortly after he was ordained, he came down with a uh, cerebral hemorrhage. So was never mm-hmm. able to really um, function as a priest. Uh, interestingly, the there was a Greek Orthodox church in the next town from where we lived named St. Theodore's in honor of my grandfather, which again, I'd never wow. learned until I was in my forties. And uh, so that was really quite fascinating to find that, that out. But um, he was a religious man, and when he came to this country, uh, there weren't Orthodox churches in the areas where he lived, and so he had his uh-huh. uh, children go to um, Episcopal churches, which are, you know, kind of Orthodox light or Catholic light, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, m- my impression is is that there was some time then in your later teenage or, or young adult period where you discovered uh, evangelicalism and kind of a very, um, a more dynamic kind of, uh, personal spirituality that came with that. Is that, is that right? Yeah, it, it was actually, um, I grew up, like I said, my mother was going to this, um, Baptist church. My father didn't go to church regularly. He owned a restaurant. All Greeks own restaurants. All Greeks are philosophers. <laughs> it's really, it is really true. And, um, so anyway, he was opened on Sundays and so that's where he was, and he didn't go unless we were on vacation. When we were on vacation, we would go to church. But anyway, so I grew up in this uh, Baptist church. I made some kind of a profession of faith when I was, I don't know, somewhere between 9 and 12 years old, but didn't really understand what that meant. Went to college, had wanted to be a good kid. This mm-hmm. was in the, uh, the late 60s. I started. I was in college from 1966 to 1970. And, wow. Um, during the uh, the height of the Vietnam War era yeah. uh, and the resistance that they had there. But anyway, so I wanted to be a good kid and I tried things. But as I went to some of the classes in my um, uh, university, there were people teaching. And I can remember this one professor. He was a professor of one of the required English literature classes. And uh-huh. uh, he went through the Bible. That was part of what you're going to su- supposedly learning. And it seemed to me that his goal in the class was to destroy the faith of any young kids that came in there with a an, some kind of an evangelical faith. And I can remember that he, he mentioned a couple of things. He said, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but that's a plural noun. So it's actually in the beginning, God's plural created the heavens and the earth. So you see, the Bible was really polytheistic at the very beginning. I thought, oh man, this guy's a professor. He's got a PhD. He, he knows everything. And oh, that's interesting. And they said, um, where did Cain's wife come from? That uh, Adam and Eve uh, had a child, Cain, and then another child, Abel. And uh, then all of a sudden it says that Cain went out and, and uh, married his wife. Where'd she come from? Oh man, that's mm-hmm. an unanswerable question. What could I ever do? And then he he pointed to something. I can't remember which where it was, but it was something like... Um, 
in the book of Kings or Chronicles, he showed a page and then he went to Isaiah, I think it was Isaiah, and showed a page. He said, it's exactly the same thing. You see that they were so careless when they um, uh, translated the Bible and, and made copies of it that they just got the wrong page in some place and it's the same thing. Oh man, this guy's a, a PhD. He's got to be right. Mm -hmm. Well, so I started getting further and further away from God at that point. And then um, there was a young woman who, when I first went to the university, uh, showed us around during orientation week. She was a yeah. nice looking girl and uh, I had never seen her again. In my third year of, sem of uh, college, uh, I suddenly saw her in the uh, library. I thought, oh, wow, yeah. she's nice. Maybe I could, you know, talk to her, take her out on a date or something like that. So I went up to her and I mentioned that I had really been appreciative because she had helped me actually at that first uh, orientation week. I was doing some stuff and I said, yeah. I just want to thank you for what you did. And I was wondering, you know, could I just take you out for a Coke and get to know you a little bit better? Oh, I'd love to do that, but I'm on my way to a meeting. I'm sorry. I can't do that. Oh, okay. So I saw her another time. Asked the same, oh, I just finished having a break. Uh, uh, thank you very much for asking me. She was very polite. That happened like four or five times. So finally, mm -hmm. one day I saw her coming up from uh, where they had their little break things at the, at the library. And I said, uh, could I uh, talk with you? And she said, oh, I'm on my way to a meeting. I said, well, can I walk you to the meeting? I just like to get to know who you are. <laughs> yeah. And she said, well, uh, sure, you can do that. It's a, a meeting of uh, Christians. And I was shocked. I thought, I think I'm a Christian, but I would never tell anybody else that. And she's huh. actually telling people. I was kind of this silent service type Christian. And yeah. uh, so we walked and she invited me to come to the meeting. I said, no, no I can't do that. Um, I don't want to bother you. Oh, that wouldn't be a bother. No, that's okay. Well, we're having another meeting tomorrow night at such and such a place. And I said, my, my mouth said, yes, I'll go. When my brain was about to say, no, I don't want to go. <laughs> yeah. And so I told her I was going to go. So anyway, the next night I went over there and um, I met a man who uh, came up to me, he was a Christian, and he said, um, George, your background seems similar to mine. Um, could we get together for some popcorn sometime and just talk? Mm -hmm. And again, I was about to say no, and my mouth said yes. And I went over, his name was Conrad Cook, and uh, he took out this little booklet, said, have you made the wonderful discovery of the spirit-filled life? And it talked about three kinds of people. There was the natural man. The natural man is somebody who doesn't understand the things of the spirit of God. There is the spiritual man, someone who has a close relationship with God. And then there was this carnal man. And carnal or fleshly man is a person who has Christ in his life, but is living as if he doesn't. And he mm -hmm. said, what you need to do is pray and ask God to be the boss of your life. Instead of you trying to tell God how to run things, you let him tell you how to run your life. So I prayed that night and it just transformed my life. Uh, from that point on, it was like, wow, it, it was like the, the puzzle of the universe came into place before this, I had, uh, wondered how does history fit together? I mean, you got all these isolated events and suddenly mm -hmm. I realized that there's a plan that there's a providential overseeing of all of history and that God is at work in all of history. Um, I began to look into issues relating to science and evolution. And then I went back and I thought, okay, now this, um, professor had told me about in the beginning, God's plural created mm -hmm. the heavens and the earth. But what he didn't tell was that the verb is singular. 
the noun is plural, but the verb is singular. So it's God, it's, it's a plural of majesty, they call it. In the beginning, God created, singular verb, the heavens and the earth. And where did Cain's wife come from? Well, it was one of his sisters. It said that Adam and Eve had, had children, uh, and they had many children. And over the time frame, it was just marrying one of his sisters that had uh, come along. Um, and then with regard to Isaiah and, Jerem and um, uh, Chronicles or uh, the books of Kings, I think it was the Kings was taken from the prophets. So the prophets wrote for the book of Kings. It was not in any way haphazard. And as a matter of fact, they had scrolls precisely so that they would not make mistakes by putting pages or losing a page. So you had to go from one thing to another because that's how the scroll unfolded. Well, that was well, this, encouraging to me. So this seems to me, you know, I mean, uh, you're as far as uh, um, this being a more conservative uh, approach to things like the Bible really, uh, the Bible really does all work. It really does all, it really does all go together and it's coming together with, um, a personal spirituality where you're recognizing God as, as you said, the boss of your life. And this all gets going. And, and then there's a, a time when you decide you're going to go, that seminary is the next step for you. Well, actually, the next step was going on uh, staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. Okay. Um, it was through a ministry of Campus Crusade. That's where this meeting was uh, in 1969 that mm -hmm. um, I, I went there and got involved with it. Graduated from seminary, worked for about, um, I don't know, six to nine months at a radio station. And wait, wait then, a second. So you were, in camp you were in Campus Crusade for a few years, and then you went to right. seminary? That is correct. I, uh, I graduated from, from uh, college, worked for about nine months at a radio station, then went on Campus Crusade for Christ staff in their mass media ministry. And then okay. four years later, four years later in 1975 is when I went to uh, seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And, and the Gordon-Conwell, that, that would be a seminary in the evangelical tradition. Yeah, it generally is. It's pretty well known within that tradition. Um, the interesting thing about Gordon-Conwell is it's an independent seminary, so it's not tied in with any individual uh, denomination. It's not Reformed. It's not Arminian. It's not uh, Episcopal. It's not uh, any other group. Um it sort of has a variety of different approaches, which is very good in one sense, not so good in another. Uh, if well, I had not sort of, go ahead. No, if I had not had the background in Campus Crusade for that four years, I'm convinced I would have been very confused when I went to seminary. But because I did have the background with Campus Crusade, talking with other people, getting a lot of um, good teaching from some of the people that were uh, in leadership positions at that point. Um, then I knew where my faith was, and I was able to go there. In fact, interestingly, one of the first papers that I did was on the question of inerrancy of Scripture, because uh, there was a little soft um, perspective at the seminary at the time. And um, I thought, you know, I better really check into this, because that's the key. Uh, if, if God is God, then and he says this is his word, then it's got to be true. And so I, I did a paper on the inerrancy of Scripture, and it it convinced me more that this really is what the, the Bible teaches mm -hmm. and what is true. Um, well, you, you, so, that was, you, so you do, go, so you do the, you're doing the, I mean, you're, you're, this to me, somebody who is really, uh, has had a lot of in campus crusade for Christ and then believing in the inerrancy of scripture, then going to seminary and further feeling, uh, convinced this, even though not all of your seminary professors were as convinced of this as, as you thought they maybe should be. But then there's a point too, where 
you get concerned about the, uh, the doctrine of eternal conscious torment and decide to write a paper on that. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, um, I grew up and my father was a very good man and a very loving father. Um, interestingly, like I said, he didn't go to church a lot, but uh, he he demonstrated a lot of Christian qualities in the way he treated my wife or um, uh, his wife, my mother, and my mm-hmm. brother and I. And so, you know, the fact that that I was loved was never a question. I knew that if I messed up really badly, my father would still love me. And just no yeah, that's one of the that. one of the endearing parts of your book is stories about the your father telling you how valuable you were to him. Yeah, and uh, it was really true. And so, um, when I became interested in following God diligently. Uh, it kind of bothered me that here you've got this God who, as I would read through scripture, seemed to be a very loving father who he would bring judgment in the sense that um, just like discipline, my father would discipline my brother and I, but there was always the opportunity for being restored. And uh, even mm-hmm. with Israel in the Old Testament, you'd have uh, God brings judgment on them, but then he's promising he's going to restore them. And so it just right. didn't seem right that um, he would somehow abandon probably the large majority of people who have ever lived and uh, abandoned them to experience endless conscious suffering. And that just is horrendous to me. But I I had never heard anything that would indicate that there would be something different. And so, uh, but it it, it kind of bothered me that. And I knew all the arguments to to tell you that it's okay, that God is really good. And even though he does have either cause or allow people to go to hell forever, uh, it's, it's really okay. It just didn't, they never really answered my, my big, my heart concern. So I decided the, um, my last uh, semester at seminary to uh, do a paper on that. I thought, you know, I'm going to look into it. And uh, there was a professor that I had who I thought was an honest professor who would take mm-hmm. what I wrote and uh, honest, honestly look in, you know, uh, give me a grade, a decent grade, depending on how well my research was. So anyway, so I started to uh, work on this um, subject and uh, I would read, I read a bunch of commentators and a bunch of um, theologians at different times in the research thing. Every one of them was talking about how this is clearly the case that Hell is endless conscious punishment. I mean, that was what it was. Right. Um, there were a couple of them that said maybe it's annihilation, but uh, basically endless conscious punishment. And I was starting to get very discouraged thinking, you know, I think I picked the top of uh, the wrong topic for my research paper. And then I came Well, that is, I mean, that, that, that's, the hardest, uh, that's the hardest question to, to answer. And a lot of times people just don't want to deal with that question. Absolutely. Absolutely. But anyway, so I decided, okay, I, I'm going to go over the card catalog one more time and see if I can find a book that somebody, it seems like I can't be the only person in history who ever had this question. Somebody else mm-hmm. must have had it in the past. And so I saw this in the card catalog, a book by the, a man named Edward Beecher who wrote in 1878. And this was 1978. So it was a hundred years earlier, kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, the topic or the title of his book was uh, see, history of the scriptural um, doctrine of retribution. Okay? okay. So it's basically history of the scriptural doctrine of hell or of eternal suffering or of endless punishment, whatever it is. And so I, yeah. you know, I got it out. And in the preface, he wrote that he had originally intended to write a book supporting one view. And in the course of re- doing his research, 
he came to a different view. I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. I wonder what the different view is. And is it based on scripture? Is it historically accurate? Turns out that Edward Beecher was uh, actually brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe of Uncle Tom's Mm -hmm. Cabin uh, fame. And uh, he at one time was pastor for a number of years at a major church in Boston. Now, Gordon Conwell is north of Boston. So I knew that church. It was a very strong evangelical church uh, at the time I was in seminary. So I assumed that Uh back in his time it was as well. And then he had left there and he went out to Illinois and he was very much involved in the abolitionist movement and a bunch of other things. But anyway, so I read the book and sure enough, it was very much the alternate view that he had come to was that God would ultimately restore all of creation. And uh, he based it He started by looking at history. That was absolutely shocking. I had been told, at least it had been assumed, that the church, the Christian church, had always taught that God was going to send some people or allow some people to go to hell forever, and uh, that the idea of restoring uh, sinners to uh, after death to uh, his uh, initial plan, that that was never even taught. What I found through Edward Beecher was that, no, that's exactly the opposite. Actually, for the first 500 years of the church, a prominent view, and according to some scholars, the dominant view was that God was going to restore all of creation to the perfection that he initially intended. That was a shock to me. I'd never heard that. And so I I did the research, and then I I started looking into scripture to find out some... um, is there some support from scripture? And uh, he pointed, uh, Edward Beecher pointed out some areas and then some other people I found a little bit later pointed out some other areas. And I became convinced that there was room within scripture for this belief. I wasn't convinced that it was actually taught there, but I was convinced that there was room for that uh, understanding within the teaching of scripture. So I wrote my paper. I got an A minus. Go on. Yeah. I got, well, you I find got out a, that then, then you find out that there is there there can there are, there is a scriptural way of making these arguments, and that that in the history of the church, there were in the, especially in the early centuries of the church, there were um, people who were reading the Greek New Testament, the language that the New Testament was written in, and they saw these possibilities as well. And that was you just didn't know that that all had all, all ever happened. That is correct. And interestingly, the people that were the most, the strongest supporters of it, God in the name of uh, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, a number of other people, their native language was the Greek of the New Testament. So mm-hmm. it's not that they were, you know, trying to find things out and, and, and try to change the way the, the language worked. That's how they understood all of their language. So they understood the the teaching of the New Testament more clearly than we do, because we have to have it translated by somebody who really doesn't speak that language now. And um, so that was a a tremendous benefit to me. And so again, I came up with the conclusion that there was room within scripture for this belief, wrote the paper, got an A minus on it. And then I thought, you know, this is really exciting. I got to let some people know about this. So I I, um, got in touch with a couple of professors my uh, advisor was one of them. I gave him a copy of my paper and he said, um, George, I just want you to know, honestly, this does not fit my theology. However, yeah. I'm convinced that God is bigger than my theology. 
that was encouragement to me. Hmm. I sent it to another, a couple of other professors and they said, well, you know, George, you're a student, nice job, but the church after the early centuries realized that the true teaching of scripture was that there would be this endless conscious punishment. And now so here's something that's in, don't want to break in, just, this uh-huh. is interesting to me that you're at this evangelical, uh, Protestant evangelical seminary in that one of the, one, in the Protestant Reformation, one of the basic ideas was uh, sola scriptura. So what Protestants had done was that they said, you know, we don't feel the, the traditions of men, that's not what we are, that's not what is determinative for us. What's determinative for us is scripture. And so we're going to follow the argument of scripture over the traditions of men. But when, when this professor said, that um, eternal conscious torment was the right answer. He said it was because the right answer because the church had believed it, the, right. that there had been a, a church council or traditions, that there had been a tradition that had developed in the church, that this was the right answer. So it was by scripture alone for everything else, but it seemed it was the, no, but, the, but with regard to this one doctrine, oh, that had been decided by the church or by tradition. Yeah, they would respond to it by saying, well, we've studied the meaning of ion, which is the meaning for uh, the word translated eternal or everlasting, and Mm -hmm. we've come to conclusive proof that this is what that really means. Um, They would not really acknowledge that it was because of tradition, but that's exactly correct. What you're saying is that's what he said. That's what he said. He didn't say, he said, well, you know, uh, George, I just don't think this is what Scripture allows. He said, no, uh, the church has already decided that that's not right. Right. And it's very much like what happened to Jesus when Jesus comes and you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're the religious right. leaders. They're the ones that are in charge. And Jesus challenged them on their tradition, that you hold yeah, that's, to and the that, traditions of men instead of the truth of God's Word. Well, and, that's kind uh, of what I, what I discovered was that basically when— if 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 we're in in the church, especially in in America, we what well, we were dominated by a, a church tradition that came over basically from Europe, and that church tradition was basically dominated by um, the the teaching in one form or another of Saint Augustine and the in the in the Western Christian Church that developed after the late late Roman Empire, and that that was a a big tradition, and there were disagreements within that tradition, and there was a Protestant Reformation and all those things, but that tradition just assumed that there was going to be, some would go to hell, that was going to be a hell of eternal conscious torment, and some would go to heaven, and that would be eternal bliss, and so that became just the groundwork, that was the box that everybody was working in, in the Western church, basically, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to challenge tradition. Uh, what people say, um, when everybody else agrees on a position and you come across and you challenge that position, that's very difficult. And it's even more so when you have authorities that are saying that. If you have the authority that has the ability to to punish you for the wrong thinking that you have, you go to church and you're theology is wrong, so they kick you out. Or they tell you that you are going to be experiencing this endless conscious punishment if you don't subscribe to the right truth. And uh, I mean, it's it's a very, very powerful uh, motivation to keep quiet. Uh, I think- Yeah, there was a fence. Go ahead. Go on. 
Well, there's, it's almost like what they did was they put up a fence there. And they said, okay, you can, you can form lots of different opinions, but there's a barrier here. You can't really, uh, this thing about hell being eternal conscious torment for all those who are outside of Christ at the point of death, that's, that's a fixed boundary, and you can't, but that's already been decided. And you right. can't go past that. If you go, if you go past that, then you're leading other people. You'll go to hell, and you'll lead other people to hell, and you can't be a part of the church anymore, and you'll be you'll be kicked out. And uh, that's a powerful inducement to stay in that boundary. Right. What happens is it leads to ignorance in future generations. In other words, the future generations never hear any alternate ideas because mm-hmm. this is the way it's supposed to be. So therefore, you must follow it. And I think one of the right. things that has and- happened when you when you come into a culture. In our modern times, we travel all over the world, literally, and we have people from all over the world coming into our sphere of relationships. So right. um, you have somebody from, uh, my, my daughter lives over in the Middle East. Um, we have, I have friends who are from uh, Asian backgrounds. I have friends who are from various kinds of backgrounds around the world, and um, they have different ideas. Uh, Indian, uh, India, Indian backgrounds. And so you begin to see people who have different theological positions and different ideas about who God is and what God does, but they're people. If you've grown up in a small area, which up until, what, I don't know, maybe the 1950s or something, uh, nobody ever traveled away. I mean, you know, you, my parents grew up in a town and they stayed there and that's, you know, their parents actually came over from Greece, so that was a little bit different. But even so, the bottom line was most people never met or really talked to or got to know people from radically different backgrounds. And so nowadays, people are seen as people. They're not just the people over there. Those people are unbelievers or those people are whatever they are. Those are my friends. I know those people. And even more so, Mm -hmm. now when you have children or parents, depending on what the situation is, uh, or close relatives who have decided not to follow along with God. What do you do with them? I mean, I have five children. I love each one of them. There's no way that I would do anything that would abandon any one of them, no matter how, how bad they've done things. And some of them have done things that are not good. Uh, but I love them just like my father loved me and, uh, and my mother too, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. and so I'm not going to abandon them, but I think, well, God will abandon them. Uh, No, that doesn't fit right. So there's more of a climate, I think, now that people are more open to hearing some challenge to that view that was historically just not even challenged. Um, And so we're in a position differently than we were a number of years ago. Yeah, and I think too the um, that with the to me it's sort of a similar time with the with the Protestant Reformation was fueled by the invention of the printing press and different ideas being able to be uh, different ideas being able to be expressed. Well, now we're in the age of the internet, and people are able just to access um, more of this uh, information. I know when I went to when I was in seminary, uh, in order to access this information, there was a there was a special, uh, it was at a Texas Christian University, and you had to have a special library card to get into the theological books. I mean, it was, it was even, even access to the theological books was uh, cut off even within the library itself, only accessible to 
the seminary students. So, uh, so knowledge was, or just these ideas or being able to find out about them was very restricted. But now um, people are, are finding out uh, all these things. And one of the things that was most interesting to me um, back in 2011, 2012, when I started looking into this more, I've, I found out that the, a lot of the most recent writing in favor of the view that God would ultimately restore and redeem the entire creation and all people, that a lot of the uh, most enthusi- people that were most enthusiastic about this were people kind of like yourself coming out of evangelical conservative backgrounds, very high view of scripture. And it wasn't that they were abandoning scripture. They were saying, no, we, we think we find evidence for this in scripture. And so I was just fascinated by that. I think you're absolutely right. Anyway, after I wrote my paper, passed it along to some other professors and other people who all kind of poo-pooed it somewhat, I decided that it would be best for me to just kind of keep quiet. Because again, I was only a seminary student. I'm not this, you know, PhD kind of guy. Um, And so uh, I kept it as a private hope for many, many years. And I would pass along copies of my paper to different people at different times that that were wondering about this issue, uh, especially with relation to their children or some loved one who had died. Uh, But I kept it kind of quiet. But I always knew deep down inside that I'd have to look at it uh, more deeply at some point. And exactly to your point, David, suddenly this thing called the internet came about where I could Uh actually look at and read Origin. I could read um, uh, Gregory of Nyssa. I could read other people who throughout history or even currently had written written things and uh, do more research on it. And so I decided uh, in 2007, actually, that, okay, now's the time to really start looking into it more carefully. In fact, I was working with a ministry uh, in New York to media people, and uh, the person I worked with, I thought, you know, he needs to know what I think, because he was a uh-huh. pastor, a former pastor. And, and so I gave him a copy of my paper and he said, wow, this is really kind of interesting. Um, you better not talk about it too much. So I decided that I would kind of phrase things when I talk to people that I'm a Calvinian, that okay. I'm, not, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian. I'm kind of in the between because what I loved was the Calvinist said, God is all powerful. He's going to accomplish whatever he intends to accomplish. And the Armenian mm-hmm. said, God is all loving and he doesn't want anyone to perish. So I put them both together and said, yes, God is going to restore all of creation. But anyway, yeah, so I, think that I what, gave him. Yeah, that, that's so interesting that, that what happened was in the Western church, that this early idea that God was uh, sovereign and could accomplish whatever God wants to, and that God was all loving and loved and wanted to save everybody. That was, they, they had the way of holding that together. But then after Augustine said, no, there's going to be a division. And then we got into the Western church. And then, so you had to answer the question, well, why is there going to be this eternal division? One side said, well, God is sovereign and God sovereignly decided that there would be a division. And then the other side said, no, God didn't really want them to be, want there to be one, but it's the people that choose to go against God. And so that's how it got divided. And what you were doing was just putting it back together like it had been uh, in the early centuries of the church. Absolutely. I'm not the first person to do that. There was a guy named Benjamin Rush who uh, did that as well back in the uh, 1700s. But anyway, there was quite a, there was quite a, Quite a period of time in the 1800s of this Edward Beecher's time when there were a lot of Christians who were starting to think this way too. So it's that there's the history to that as well. Okay, but anyway, back to your paper. Yeah. So anyway, I decided I better 
revise my paper because it was written like a seminary, you know, uh, um, care, uh, a research, like a research paper. paper, right? It was written like a research yeah. paper. And I thought, you yeah, know, I got to have something I can give to people that's a little bit clearer. And so I started to right. uh, rewrite it. And then I thought, well, I got to get a little more information here, a little more information there. I found out again, the internet existed so I could actually look into some things. And, um, mm-hmm. so I started to write, to revise the paper and it turned into a book. And, um, so I, uh, there, there are a number of, of things that happened. I read one book, interestingly, Jerry Boschman. Uh, I don't know if you know him, David. Yeah. But d- uh-huh, Jerry wrote a book called uh, Hope Beyond Hell. And what had happened was mm-hmm. I, one day I decided, you know, I need to get a copy of Edward Beecher's book because that really made an impact right. in my life. So I, I looked on the internet to see if there is, is there any way I can find a copy of it where there happened to be one that was on this website called tentmaker.org. And uh, I looked at it and for the first time in my life, I found somebody yeah. that believed the same thing that I did. I was shocked. I, I looked at the website and it said that God is going to restore all of creation, that Jesus Christ succeeded in his mission to seek and save the lost. And it gave a telephone mm-hmm. number. So I called up the telephone number and uh, Gary Emerald was the, the person who was in charge of it. And I said, um, are you Gary Emerald? Yeah. My name is George Saris. I wrote this paper back in seminary. Do you believe that God is going to restore all of creation? Yes. I, it was just a shock. And so we talked for uh, a while. He was the first person I ever met that had that same view and was based on scripture. And so mm-hmm. uh, I... Um, talked with him for a while. He recommended Jerry Boschman's book, Hope Beyond Hell. I read that and Jerry really presses the idea that this is the scriptural belief. And uh, so I decided I better really look into it that much more carefully. I did. Yeah, his, then, book is an, his book is another example that, you know, if somebody says that, you know, this, uh, this universal salvation or the idea that, uh, that all will finally be saved seems like this kind of a liberal idea. And I said, well, uh, that was one of, well, look at this Gary Boschman's book, uh, hope beyond hell. And, and you'll definitely find somebody that's very passionate about scripture as they're making their arguments about this. Absolutely. And so anyway, then, uh, I was led to another book called, um, the evangelical universalist by a man named Gregory McDonald. And in the introduction, Mm -hmm. the author says, that's not my real name, but I've written other books and, and I don't want to, um, cause some difficulties because he had had his view changed as well. And so, uh, then right. there was another one uh, called, um, see, it was, uh, uh, universal salvation, the current debate. And, um, it okay. was, a uh, a book that had, um, the, the primary contributor was a man named Tom Talbot who had written a book earlier called, uh, let's see, what was it? It's, um, the inescapable love of God. Right. The inescapable love of God. And uh, so he was the primary contributor. And then you had other people responding to what he had to say. Well, it was edited by a man named yeah. uh, Robin Perry and another Christopher, somebody else uh, edited it. And so I thought, yeah, I'll just write to Robin Perry. I don't know who he is, but I'll see what happens. And so I wrote to him and I asked him a couple of questions and he responded uh, very kindly and uh, graciously. Then a couple of years later, he came out and identified himself as Gregory MacDonald, who had written the Evangelical Universalist. Anyway, all of this time, I'm just looking at information and becoming increasingly convinced that this is not only a view that is permittable within Scripture, it's actually what Scripture teaches. And, um, 
so anyway, I was starting to write the book and uh, I, I wrote the first draft. And then in 19, yeah. let's see, in 2012, um, 42 years after I graduated from college, uh, I got uh -huh. a phone call from my former college roommate. And I was kind of surprised at that. Uh, his sister had written to me, uh, sent me an email at one point, and I gave my uh, telephone number. And uh, so on my birthday, my former, uh, his name is Jack, uh, Jack called me up and we talked for a while. And uh, he had been um, a uh, marketing director for uh, a couple of major companies and was now retired. And so he said at the end, he said, George, anything I can do to help you? And I said, well, you know, I've written this book and you might be able to help me with a, uh, a marketing plan or something. And he said, okay, send me the book. So mm -hmm. I, I sent him a copy of it. He got back to me and said, George, it's a great research paper, extended research paper, but it's not a book. If you want to make it into a book, what you've got to do is start each chapter with a story. You've got to um, lower the amount of the volume of information in the actual text and put some of the secondary information as footnotes or as endnotes, not footnotes. And um, you've got to be much more conversational. So for the next couple of right. years, few years, uh, I tried to rewrite it and I'd send him stuff and he would kind of go back and forth with that. It was a tremendous blessing. And uh, anyway, so I, he helped me to contact various publishers. I ended up contacting uh, 28 publishers that said no. And uh, a couple, <laughs> one or two other ones that said yes, but they, they were not a good enough publisher for what I needed to do. And uh, so finally in 2017, I decided to actually publish it on my own. And so that's what I did. And, um, so it came out and then interestingly, um, in 2018, uh, we had, uh, I had decided to submit it to this one, uh, award area, the yeah. illumination book awards for exemplary Christian literature and, uh, found out that I was awarded the silver medal in theology in the 2018 illumination book awards for exemplary Christian literature. So that was such a, a real delight to see that, Hey, my book really was Somebody read it. Yeah. And they, they actually <laughs> liked Somebody it. Somebody saw and it. The thing is, yeah. <laughs> what I want, my goal was to make a book that was readily available and easy to read by the normal person, but also something that mm -hmm. would stand up to scholarly challenge. And well, uh, I think I felt, that you, I think you succeeded very well with that. But when you're, when your book came out, uh, not everybody had positive, had something positive to say about it. Yeah, actually, way before the book actually came out, um, in I think it was 2011, Rob Bell published his book called Love Wins. And in it, mm -hmm. he approached the topic, the subject of universalism, that God is going to ultimately restore all. He didn't, uh, he didn't, he was not convinced that was the case, but he was asking questions. Uh, his style is to provoke questions for people, make people think. Well, that right. was a firestorm. I mean, what happened was that just, you know, everybody was uh, dumping on Rob Bell because, you know, he's, he's suddenly become liberal and all this, that, and the other thing. And um, it be, uh, he was even, I think, on the cover of Time magazine, something like that. Right. Uh, it was just a big, big deal. Well, an issue that nobody even thought of. It was not even a, on the horizon for most evangelicals anyway, suddenly became the number one issue. Uh, at, uh, on people's minds. And so the ministry that I was working with, with the media professionals in New York, um, 
my my uh, colleague said, you know, George, I think you need to let the person who's in charge of our uh, ministry know what you think. And mm-hmm. so I thought, yeah, I probably need to do that. So I wrote um, a letter or an email to him. I sent a copy of the um, the manuscript at the time to him. And three days later, I was terminated from uh, that position. And he sent out a letter to the people involved in the ministry saying that George had been uh, released for doctrinal aberrations. And so that was not good. And then uh, my church, um, there was we were going to a church, had been there for 20 years, my wife and I, and we were actively involved in it. Um, when that came out, I, I had actually at one point given a copy of the manuscript to the interim pastor. The, the pastor we had had passed away a few months earlier. And um, so I gave a copy of my book to the interim pastor and he said, well, you know, this is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Just, just sort of keep quiet about it. And um, in fact, over the course of my life, I've been an elder at a couple of times. And each time I um, would give a copy of my paper to the, the pastor and they'd say, well, George, this is very interesting. Just don't talk about it too much. And uh, so I, I honored that. Well, anyway, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the church, uh, this interim pastor thought it would be okay if I just was quiet. He brought it to the elders and they said, well, you know, as long as George doesn't talk about it, that's fine. Until all of a sudden, this one woman who, through a various set of circumstances, found out what I thought, wrote a letter to the elders saying, how can George Saris possibly continue to be a member of this church when he doesn't subscribe to the doctrinal statement that includes endless conscious punishment? And yeah, so, and that's the case. Uh, you know, that's the case with the with a lot of churches that are that uh, you know organized in, um, that have and and usually churches when they organize they set up a series of doctrinal statements. And if they're if, if they're a part of the Western theological tradition that came down from uh, Augustine and the various forms of that, and through the Protestant Reformation, one of those doctrinal statements is that there will be a division, and some will go to a hell of eternal separation from God and, and, and others will be saved to go to a heaven of, of bliss. And that that's sort of set in concrete somewhere. And um, if you get outside of that, then people don't know what to do with you anymore. Absolutely. Um, it just, <laughs> it just doesn't quite fit the, the box that they want to put God in. Which and, is interesting uh, because when the, you know, when the early, in the, in the, in the first centuries of the church, when there was the, we think of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed as the two sort of major creeds that came together to try to understand what, what is the center, what are the most important things we are believing. They did not say in those statements, oh, and by the way, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe that that God will separate people forever into one of two places. And if, if it's in hell, it will be eternal conscious torment. And if heaven, it will be eternal bliss. That was never put in the Apostles' Creeds or the, or the Nicene Creed. Right, absolutely. And that's really a key thing because, interestingly, the Nicene Creed was the only doctrinal statement that ever came out by the entire church. It was a unified church at that time. You didn't have East and West. You just had one church. And they had sat down to decide, okay, what is essential for us as Christians to believe? And so they wrote that down. And uh, they did not include anything about eternal destinies. So, and at the time— They said there was judgment. There was a judgment that, that, that there would be a judgment, but they left it open— to exactly how that how that judgment would work, and one of the primary people that was involved with the Nicene Creed was Gregory of Nyssa, 
And he was of the opinion that, yes, there would be a judgment, but after God's judgment had finished in the coming ages, all would finally be restored. Right. The purpose of God's judgment was not just to punish people and inflict pain. The purpose was to bring people to a point where they acknowledge their need for God's grace through Christ. That's really the key. And so that is, from my perspective, that is the statement of faith of the Christian church. What I say in my book is that each other various group, denominations, whatever, have statements of distinctives, but not statements, they shouldn't be called a statement of faith in that sense, that these are the distinctives that we have. I believe that, um, you know, only believers can be baptized. No, I believe that infants should be baptized, or I believe that Christ will be coming before a millennium. No, it's after a millennium. And there's all these different groups that have different ideas, but those are not critical ideas. Um, those are distinctives. And it's nice to have other people that can agree with you on your distinctives, but that doesn't make you, that's not what the Christian church, big C, actually believes. Yeah. Well, so then after the Christian church, big C, it got divided and we entered, uh, there was something called, a lot of people call the Western Christian tradition in the, mm-hmm. in the, the late Roman empire. And it was actually the emperors that called these, that called these, uh, councils and and were very involved in in making decisions there was an emperor named Justinian and he tried to force out of the church anybody that didn't go along with Augustine's basic idea that that there was a, that people outside of the church were going to go to a hell of eternal conscious torment and so he tried to pass an anathema that said that anybody with it, that didn't believe in the eternal suffering of the unrighteous and of the devil and the demons he kind of all lumped it together uh, that they were they were anathema. They were they were outside of the church, and there was a there was a council, and he tried to get that passed, but then the pope didn't come to it, and there was a bunch of confusion about the council. The pope didn't come till later, and he didn't actually ever. Uh, history doesn't show that he actually ever affirmed these anathemas that were attached to the proceedings. Anyway, that was a very confusing situation, but it led to the impression that anybody after that time in the Western church that even got close to the doctrine of a universal restoration was, was maybe some type of a heretic. And you do a really good job of covering that in, in, your, in your book. Can you say a little bit more about Justinian and that council and what happened there? Yeah, Justinian was the Eastern Roman Empire at the time. I think it was like 520-something to 567, I think, is when he uh, reigned. Um, the Western church or the Western empire had fallen. They fall, they fell what, 476, something like that. Yeah. So it was the Eastern Empire. And, uh, but that's what becomes the Western, that, it's funny that, but that's what becomes the Western Christian tradition, though. That's correct. And what happens was the, um, he was a strong leader who wanted to restore the glory of ancient Rome, right? It had fallen down. And one of the most important things you can do if you want to get a, a, a culture unified is make sure everyone believes the same thing. And so he yeah, really religion, became, you know, that word religion, religion has in it re and then lig ligament to oh. to to bind to bind together. And that was what that was what the purpose of religion was, was to bind the group together. So they needed in Justinian's idea, we need one version of this faith to bind us together. Yeah, that's a good insight. I did not know that about the word religion, but that's yeah. very that's exactly correct. And so he. He really pushed as hard as he could to get that idea uh, in place. What I say in my book is that the spiritually powerful early church became the materially powerful 
imperial church. And I think mm-hmm. that's really what happened was once you have prior to uh, Constantine in what was, I think it was 320, 313 is when he issued his uh, edict of whatever it was called. I can't remember right now, but the edict that Milan. Yeah. Edict of Milan that made Christianity that allowed it as a view. It actually made it a right. preferred. He, be, he, he made it the preferred religion, but it was not the, it was not the only, only religion in the empire. Uh, but right. under Justinian, and actually I think there was another guy that came prior to that, they uh, made this the official religion of the empire. And Justinian right. even... They, uh, yeah, the say, pagans, the, he closed the pagan, like the, 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 the schools that taught the pagan Greek philosophy, he closed them down, and that's when you start getting persecution of the Jews and just to, trying to force out anybody that wasn't in this in this very kind of strict... Uh, view of the faith with this eternal conscious torment doctrine. That's correct. So um, <clears throat> he he tried to implement that, and then it became more and more the dominant view of what's going on. I, I often say that intimidation leads to ignorance, which leads no. See, intimidation leads to. Oh, I can't remember now what I was going to say. <laughs> but anyway, it, that leads. <laughs> well, well, it leads to in, yeah, ignorance. The, 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 in future, uh, yeah, they can, people can't yeah. investigate. People can't investigate things, and they can't they can't think about things. So, so then, sort of, what happened was, even though in in, in that council uh, there was there's a there's a debate about whether or not it ever form what it ever formally accomplished because it was called for some uh, another issue, but the it left a sort of a dark cloud over the idea. And people had to be uh, the idea of a universal salvation. And so then from that point forward for, you know, a thousand years at least, uh, people, if they if they even started to think that, had to be very circumspect about it and and not talk about it openly. Absolutely. And um, again, you've got that intimidation factor that leads people to not want to question anything and being afraid to question it. And uh, that became more and more the case within the church itself. What I, uh, what I say in my book, I think, is that um, once Christianity became the favored religion of the empire, then you get people with mixed motives. They begin to get into positions of leadership. Prior to it becoming the favored religion um, under uh, Constantine, it was, if you were a leader in the church, there's a good chance you're going to get Put to death or tortured. That's what happened to Origen. He was tortured. Uh, a number right. of people that were tortured for their faith. Well, if you're going, if the potential of torture exists, the chances that you're going to be a pseudo Christian or hypocrite uh, kind of leaves very quickly. The bottom line is, I either really believe this and I'm willing to suffer, or I'm not even going to get involved in this group. So, mm-hmm. but once that changed, now you got people with mixed motives getting into position of leadership. And once you, it's really true, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And you get a whole bunch of people that get into positions of leadership that really are looking more for power than they are for the benefit of the, uh, the people. And, and it turns out that this is a very powerful thing. You know, at that point, they, you know, it, the idea wasn't that, uh, how do, how do I get saved? Uh, well, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, back at, at that point, how do I get saved? Well, I come within, I come within the the, the saving uh, embrace or the circle or the 
the the church and through the sacraments of the church through through baptism and and uh, communion and all the things that were associated with the church so basically how how are you saved you come into the you come into the church the church of the empire and you receive its sacraments and that's how grace comes to you and if you're not inside of that then your destiny is eternal conscious torment so that's a very powerful you know you're in or you're out that's a very powerful position for the empire to have been in yeah and what happened in the western world um you didn't have the the secular power nearly as strong and so the the power of the roman church became more and more the dominant power and influence in Europe, which is where we come from. Yeah. I mean, you got the United right. States and basically Europeans that have come over to this country and established things. So when they came over, yeah, and people, even though were, they were looking for religious freedom, which they found, uh, they didn't really incorporate too much of the religious freedom for that particular issue. Um, although there were the way I sometimes explain did. it, there were people that did. Yeah, the way I sometimes explain it to people is that. There was the what happened was the sort of the Augustinian world in which there was this eternal uh, heaven and this eternal hell that became that became the backdrop to the Western Western Christian tradition. You can even see if you go to the Sistine Chapel, it really is the backdrop. It's the it's the back wall is the judgment scene on the Sistine Chapel. Right. And so that that judgment scene was just sort of set in stone in lots of ways. And when they had the Protestant Reformation, they didn't question that that judgment scene that was in the background there. They just questioned, well, how do you get onto the good side? And we think that maybe the way that you get to the good side with God is through this faith. And it and it's not necessarily through the sacraments of the church that it's the it's faith that is that actually is the thing that does it. But they didn't, there wasn't much room to question that 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 back that backdrop that Augustinian heaven uh, eternal hell backdrop that didn't really start happening uh, too much until uh, around the 1800s. One of the things I appreciate about your book is that you you then go into the uh, some of the history of of starting around the 1800s. Some of the people who started to um, uh, rethink uh, rethink all of these things. I think you mentioned Benjamin Rush was one of them, but there were mm-hmm. other people that you mentioned in your book. And of course, Edward, Edward Beecher. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah. Um, there was actually always a small remnant of people who believed in God being the ultimate restorer of all things. And, uh, one of the things mm-hmm. I do try to put in, a, a, not a lot of information, but different individuals throughout history, um, many of them in the right. Western tradition who did hold to these views, even though they were, in some cases, they were um, punished for it or excommunicated or whatever. And then you come down to this country, and this country really does have religious freedom far more than any of the other countries ever did. The idea of a state church, religious free, you know, the, the um, division between uh, state and church didn't mean that the church uh, couldn't be active. What it meant was there's no official state church. That was the whole key, that you don't want to have official positions so that people were free to believe whatever they want. And sure enough, there were people that started to come up with um, uh, the idea that God is going to universally restore all of creation. And um, I think- Yeah, there began to be quite a a movement of that in, in the early America. Yeah, it really was. In fact, uh, the Universalist Church, 
which is different, by the way, from the Universalist Unitarian Church or Unitarian Universalist Church that exists today. Um, But it started out with the Universalist Church around 1790, 1791, something like that. Um, There was uh, some people in uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts. There were people in uh, Philadelphia, people in the South, uh, a number of people that were starting to to preach these things. In fact, in Boston, there was a man named Charles Chauncey who was the uh, pastor for like 60 years or something of First Church of Boston. I mean, this was a big, big deal. And um, yeah. after he died, uh, published a book <laughs> that uh, that went into his views that he actually believed God was going to restore all, which was kind of a shock to everyone. He had been looking into this for a number of years and then finally came to that conclusion just shortly before he died. And then after he died, it became a a book that was published. But yeah, I appreciate that where your book goes into a lot of those stories. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he was a person who actually got John Adams and uh, Jeff, uh, Thomas Jefferson back together again after they had been alienated from one another. Uh, he was actually the, I think, vice president of the Philadelphia Bible Society. And uh, he became interested in this and, and wrote a book for his descendants on this whole issue. And, um, but a number of other people, but anyway, so you had this universalist church that began in that time and it started to grow and really grew phenomenally well. And, uh, then in the late 1800s, late 1800s, when, um, Darwin came out with, uh, um, uh, origin of species and you have theory of evolution. Yeah. Right. And then you had a number of people back in, um, uh, Germany, uh, Julius Wellhausen and some other people that came up with the something called the documentary hypothesis, which talks about the Bible. Really, what you read is not really what it claims to be. And uh, they came up with these ideas. So what happened was people for the first time were really challenging the integrity of scripture, that this really is not what God wrote. So you've got Darwin, you've got Julius Wellhausen and the documentary hypothesis and a bunch of other people really challenging that. It was at that point that a lot of the mainline denominations within this country in the Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, um, uh, Episcopal, you know, a lot of other groups um, started to get somewhat soft on scripture that, well, we can't really get that much into scripture because, you know, maybe we can't trust the Bible. And, uh, well, the Unitarian or the Universalist Church began to have that influence them as well. And um, Yeah, I think it had something to do also with the, the, with the rise in the tide of, of science and uh, that there right. were people that started to say, let's not, I mean, I think uh, some, it's fairly clear that some of our early founders were sort of in this deist camp, was the idea like, let's, let's, let's not, let's de-emphasize all this miraculous stuff and let's find out what, what is the, what's the core and what are the good moral teachings? And, and so some of those folks then said, well, we don't need to be Christian universalists in the sense of, you know, believing in the Trinity and the virgin birth and the resurrection. We just need to hold on to the universal fatherhood of God and God's love for all people. And so then the, the, uh, the Christian universalism in that group started to lose its distinctive Christian aspect. That's correct. And then they began to get smaller and smaller. And then in 1961, it was not really a long time ago, but 1961, they merged with the Unitarian Church. 
the Unitarian Church was always much more liberal than the uh, than the Universalist Church. Yeah, there and is a Christian. There is a Christian fellow Christian Universalist fellowship within the U- Christian Universalist Church, but it's a smaller group. That is correct. And uh, so anyway, that happened in 1961, and so Universalism really got a bad name um, in one sense within the evangelical world as just being liberal. And uh, yeah. but again, people just were not looking into. Is this really something that scripture can, scripture teaches or not? And uh, so, what what I was trying to do with my book and just in my life was find out that this was a legitimate historical view. It's not something that George Saris came up with in the twentieth or twenty first century. This is something right. that was a major, not even a a minor view. This was a major and perhaps the dominant view in the first 500 years of the church. So that gave me the hope that I could look into it more carefully. And once I did, and looking into the scriptures, I became convinced that, yes, this is really what the scriptures teach. And, yeah. And, uh, so and, that, and, and really another thing I like about your, another thing I like about your book is that, is that you talk about how the Eastern Orthodox church, uh, really took a different really had had kind of a different path and they never got so just fixated on it. Well, it has to be eternal, uh, eternal conscious torment. That's the only view that's possible. The Eastern church uh, remembered much better the early Greek speaking church because they're the Greek, they're the Greek Orthodox church. And they remembered those Greek speaking early, uh, early church fathers. And it was even the case that Gregory of Nyssa, was declared a the father of the fathers, so he is very revered in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and so they had they have more openness to this idea or the of, of at least the possibility of a universal restoration within the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox Church. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting because while I was still writing my book, um, I happened to attend a conference where there was this man who was part of the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, present. And uh, he was um, pretty well known within the area of uh, what this group was uh, doing. And I went up to him and I said, um, by the way, are you familiar with the uh, view of ultimate restoration? And he said, well, he said, it's not my view, but I do have to admit that uh, Gregory of Nyssa, who is highly revered in the Orthodox Church, uh, held to that view. So what's happened is that if you asked a typical Eastern Orthodox person do you believe in heaven and hell? Yeah. What's heaven? Heaven's where the believers go forever uh, to be experiencing bliss. And hell is where the uh, wicked go to be uh, eternally punished. That's sort of what the average person believes, but that is not what the teaching is of the church. And um, they're much more um, open to that that view. In fact, uh, after I left um, the one church that I couldn't continue to be a member of anymore, um, started to attend an Eastern Orthodox church nearby. And I spoke to the the priest the first week and he said, oh, that's a that's an interesting idea. He said, um, I need to follow through with that. But yeah, you're welcome. That's not a, you know, the church is kind of, um, they have not come down hard on one way or the other with regard to that doctrine. It's not, yeah, I know neither, that, it's that, neither dogma nor heresy. It's, it's called a theologomenon, which means uh, a private word from God. Yeah, I know that some people that that come out of uh, sort of the Western church background and they start to become more interested in the possibility of a universal restoration will, will end up joining, becoming part of the Eastern Orthodox Church because they are permitted to, to hope 
and they, they might not be able to hold it as a some kind of doctrinal certainty, but they are permitted to hope for it and to pray for it and 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 to believe it. And they can point to uh, folks like Gregory of Nyssa, who who are highly revered in the church and who have had this and who have had this position. So that's a that's a place that sometimes people end up. Yeah, very true. Truly, in fact, uh, uh, David Bentley Hart, who wrote, uh, was it? Um, that all shall be saved. Right, that all shall be saved is Eastern Orthodox. Um, and there are others as well that... Uh, yeah, he made that. He made the journey. He grew up in the Episcopal Church and then right. eventually moved to the Eastern Orthodox Church precisely because they had a, they had a, a stronger memory of the early Eastern uh, Greek-speaking church fathers who held to, the, held to views uh, of, you know, the, of universal restoration or close, or close to it or were very open to the idea of it. Yeah. Interestingly, the Western Church, in terms of the Roman Catholic tradition, um, in the uh, eight, uh, 20th century, there was a man named Hans Erth, Erth von Balthasar who yeah. um, wrote a book called Dare We Believe That All May Be Saved. And in it, yeah, he, Dare We Hope. Dare We, I think it's Dare We Hope. Okay. Maybe that would, whatever is it, it is. Anyway. Something. I'm not yeah. sure, whichever it is. Anyway, Hans Urs von Balthasar is the, the author, but um, he was basically putting together information from the history of the church. And, and again, the Roman church, uh, Roman Catholic church believes that tradition is very important. Sometimes the, the evangelical church, we jump from the apostles to the reformers and a thousand years of information, we just kind of throw out the window, whereas they felt that this was important. And so he was looking at some of the, uh, the people in the history of the church and uh, wrote this book. And so it has become kind of a, um, an, not a loud view, but it, it's, all, it, it's a minority view that some people say, well, we don't know that anyone actually went to hell. There's nothing in the history of the church mm-hmm. that says any individual specifically went to hell, not even Judas. And so therefore, you know, maybe hell is empty. Um, and in the catechism of the Catholic church, they have uh, a couple of statements that we pray for the salvation of the entire world and with God, all things are possible. So it's kind of a, a somewhat, um, they, they haven't come down really hard as much as some of the evangelical churches have. And again, I'm an evangelical Um but uh, in some ways, the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches are a step ahead of where the evangelical church is in this uh, this particular area. Yeah, that book is that dare we dare we hope all okay. will be saved. And and on von Balthasar in that book said that he thought that the chance of um, uh, he admitted said that he admitted in principle that some might successfully evade God's love forever. On the other hand, he also declared that in reality, the chances of it actually occurring were infinitely improbable. So, to put it put it positively, uh, von Balthasar thought it you know it approached a, you know infinite probability that all would be saved. Uh, right. That he thought that the that the saving efforts of God would go so far that it it was incredibly unlikely that once everything was all cleared up in the and the child of God saw who they were and saw their essence and they saw who God was and they saw how everything all fit together with in clarity that they would freely choose at that point to, to come, to come home. And he thought that would happen in uh, most probably 
in all cases, although he admitted that there might be some some way that it might not happen in every single case. That was kind of, that was his basic position. Yeah. I, I just published a uh, short booklet. Uh, a friend of mine asked if I would, he said, yeah, I, I saw really that. like your book. Yeah. I like your book. I'd like to have something that's small that people can read in like, you know, 45 minutes or something that uh, gives the basic ideas here, the, the basic support for this view of ultimate restoration. So I thought, oh, that's a great idea. So I did, I put one together, but in there, uh, at the end of it, I say, um, couple of the things that we have to keep in mind. Number one, God desires, God wants to save all men. Okay. Number two, God has the power, is able to save all men and women. Mm -hmm. But then number three, God will save all people. And the, uh, what I did there was I used, it's really true. I was at a, a conference a number of years ago where uh, there was a theologian that uh, I talked with, and we had a really friendly conversation. And uh, he was convinced that God was willing, desired that all people be saved. He also believed that God was able to save all people, but he thought that because of free will, some of those people would not be saved. There would be some people who would harden their hearts for eternity. And I said to him, well, you know, that's mm -hmm. theoretically possible, but it's not going to happen because God has revealed in Scripture what the end will be. Where the Apostle Paul says, at the end of time, every knee will bow and every tongue will freely confess. The word there for to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the, the actual word is used, defined as praise in some places in Scripture. It's always, every use of it is freely, joyfully given so that every tongue will freely yeah, and joyfully uh, praise, uh, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So that's yeah, really kind of, is that, is that Greek word. And like you're saying, it's, it, it is, it does talk about joyful, a joyful proclamation. So it's not just that, uh, you know, a grudging kind of, yeah, we admit that you're right, but right. it's a, it's I, a, it's a, jo it's a joyful proclamation. Yeah. I mean, it would be, I've often said to people that it would be a travesty to think that God would accept hypocritical praise. I mean, that's not who God is. He doesn't feign praise. It's like, yeah, I'm standing up uh, or I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You know, some little kid who uh, you tell, sit down. Yeah. And he says, yeah, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's not who God is. Right. He wants to transform the entire person so that the love that comes to him and to that person is genuine all the way through. Well, what I think we've done, what I think we have accomplished in this in this discussion, we've gotten a good uh, good overview, and we've talked about a, a lot of how this can be, um, how how it can be talked about in in scripture. But um, maybe what we can do the next time that we have a, a conversation is we can get more into the get more into the Bible, and you definitely get into the Bible in your book. So maybe we can uh, next time go through some of the, for some of the positive scriptures that you cite to, that make you believe that all will ultimately be saved. And then, you know, there are a lot of people that will raise questions like, well, what about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? And right. didn't Jesus talk about hell in the Sermon on the Mount? And what about the parable of the sheep and goats and other types of things? And you give good responses to all of these things in your book. So maybe that's what we can do. Um, that's what we can do next time that we get together and and visit on this. But I want to thank you for um, all the work that you did for putting together such a readable book. Again, it's called Heaven's Doors, 
uh, wider than you um, than you ever believed. And now you've got a new shortened uh, new shortened version of the book called How Wide Are Heaven's Doors. And those are both easily accessible. You can look up George George Saris or uh, Heaven's Doors, and you can uh, you can find that um, uh, pretty quickly. Are there are there other ways that people can get uh, in in touch with you? George? Yeah, they can um, uh, write to me, george at heavensdoors.net, and uh, it will get to me. Um, and they can call. I, I actually have <laughs> I, I have produced a number of Bible stories that are word for word from Scripture, but done in the style of a dramatic storyteller that has music and sound effects. And the, um, the website for that is World's Greatest Stories. And uh, so you can go to George at World's Greatest Stories. I think that will get to me. But um, now do do the email, George at HeavensDoors.net. But th- I have a, a telephone number, which is an 800 number, 888 number, not 800, 888 number. It's uh-huh. 888-888-STORIES, 888-STORIES, which is 888-786-7437. I think that's what it is. But if you look at um, the... Uh, the word stories, that's what it comes out at. So that will come up well, on my, uh, my telephone. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you for this. Uh, thank you for this first uh, conversation that we've been able to have together. And I want to come back and let's do another another conversation and we'll get into um, into a little more of the, the, the nitty gritty and into the detail about various passages of scripture, because I think people will be uh, very interested in your perspectives on this. Well, it has been a joy to talk to you, David. Thank you again for the privilege of being a part of this. All right. Okay. Well, I look forward to the next time we visit together. Talk to you later, George. God bless. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.